This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 25th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your state society of CPAs and Kaplan Financial Education. Mitt Zollers, and I'm going to be talking to you this week again from Phoenix. And we're going to look at a number of developments. It's been a couple of weeks because we had the end of tax season. And believe it or not, I actually have tax work I need to get done. So we had a few things happening over the past two weeks, but now we're back to the list. So I have a few things to uh, catch up on. And this, we're going to take a look at a case that gets us into the rules for no additional cost services as a fringe benefit. In particular, why a taxpayer ended up being taxed on some but not all of the no additional cost services that his former employer, because he was a retired airline pilot, uh, provided to him and his family. We'll also talk about the fact that if you were waiting and believing at some point you'd be able to file claims for refund because your clients have would have had itemized deductions that had state and local taxes in excess of 10 grand and you've been following that lawsuit, uh, the Supreme Court pretty much now has finalized the issue by refusing to hear an appeal from the Second Circuit regarding that particular lawsuit. We're going to talk about the IRS finally getting around to making some uh, necessary relief granted for elections and accounting method changes related to changes that were made in a law passed right at the end of 2019. We'll also talk in some detail here about the rules that apply for a real estate professional because real estate pros are something that a lot of clients claim to be. And so we need to kind of understand what it means to be a real estate pro, what issues are required to be a real estate pro, and how we're, how clients get themselves in trouble in that area. Uh, this particular case, the way the client got himself in trouble, is actually pretty much every way possible. But we'll talk about the ways your client needs to be concerned about as we look at that. We actually are never getting out of this K2, K3 situation, it appears. The IRS did go ahead and expand on the K2, K3 FAQs this past week, adding some additional updates uh, for the some items, some of which are useful. They didn't come near, though, covering all the issues we probably would have liked them to cover on these FAQs. But at least we have something to work with. So let's start with the case of Mahalik versus Commissioner. This is Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-36. The decision was released on April the 13th. So this was a, you know, kind of just before tax deadline opinion that came out. And the case deals with a taxpayer who is a retired United Airlines pilot. And as you may be aware, you know, pilots and other people who work for the airlines, they and their families are generally allowed to fly on a space available basis on the flights. That is, so let's say that we have a plane that's leaving here in Phoenix from Phoenix Sky Harbor. It's going to be going to, I don't know, Cincinnati, Ohio. If that plane is not totally full, then an employee of American Airlines, let's say, let's say it's American doing it, who wants to fly from Phoenix to Cincinnati, uh, you know, has some reason, wants his family there, wants to visit, they can essentially decide to go down to the airport and fly standby. Uh, 
And if that space is still available on the plane, there is, you know, all seats aren't used, then they're able to fly on that. Now, normally, anything you get from your employer that is of value in exchange for the fact that you're working for them, which is what's happening here, right? You you have those rights. If you and I just kind of walk down, right? Walk down to walk down. I guess uh, took it took an Uber or a taxi down to Sky Harbor and went in and just talked to the people at American or Southwest and said, oh, yeah, if you got space, I'd like to go to Dallas today. And, you know, they, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, if we got space, you can do it for free. They're going to want me to pay. Well, that's the catch. Those people get to the employees get to fly on those space available flights because of the fact of performing services. And even though clients often believe that anything they receive from their employer that's not in cash is not taxable, I would point out that Section 61A1 very clearly tells us that everything, all gross income is taxable, and specifically compensation for services, including fees, commissions, fringe benefits, and similar items are all considered taxable income. Now, you may say, wait, 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 but, but I know all these fringes that people get that aren't taxable. That's true. But, and here's the caveat, they're not taxable because another provision of the code provides they can be excluded from income. But whenever the code provides for that, it almost always imposes a series of conditions. First thing is we've got to have that benefit in the code saying it can be excluded from income. But secondly, we generally, it's not going to be just anything vaguely like X. It's going to be things of this sort and if the program in question for granting that benefit meets the following requirements. In this case, we're looking at what's called under code section 132, the ability to fly, or basically an employer's ability to provide under 132B, no additional cost services, okay? Now, no additional cost services is something that, let me put it straight up for you. If you take a look at the details, most employers are absolutely not able to provide because no additional cost means no additional cost. And that means no opportunity cost, right? You might think, wait, I'm a CPA firm. If I allow my, let's say, clerical staff, you know, we go ahead and we prepare their tax returns. Well, is that a no additional cost service? The answer is no. It is not qualified for this. Why? Well, the number one rule, which you would meet, is this has to be a service that we offer to the general public. Well, tick that box. My CPA firm offers the service of doing tax planning, tax compliance work, etc., to the public. So it is a service that we normally sell. But the problem becomes the no additional cost concept. In this case, if I do a return for my clerical staffer, I'm not doing return for a paying customer. Now, you might think, well, if, you know, Southwest Airlines has this person fly on the plane, they obviously aren't having a paying customer fly on the plane. But here's the catch. Remember, I said they're waiting on standby. If they're on standby and that plane is going to go from, I guess we had American in the example, going from Phoenix to Cincinnati, that seat's going to go from Phoenix to Cincinnati whether somebody's sitting in it or not. And while there probably is a very minor, marginal, additional fuel cost 
for having that person on because that person weighs and we get to the standard problem that it's going to take a certain amount of extra energy to get that person, you know, to, to have the plane achieve the uh, flight speed, etc., that it wants to achieve by having slightly more load in it, but very slightly percentage-wise compared to the overall weight of the plane. That's considered to be a no additional cost service. Now, as is pointed out in this case, if that person was allowed, let's say that employee for American was offered a reserve seat. So that person needs to fly to Cincinnati tomorrow. Okay. They don't, they, you know, they want to lock the seat down right now rather than wait to make sure when you get to the airport that that seat hasn't been taken by somebody who bought the seat, maybe somebody who missed their flight, got bumped, whatever. And now we're using them to route them to their destination by having them fly on that flight to Cincinnati on what had previously been the empty seat. You can't do that. If it is a reserve seat, it doesn't meet this criteria, right? You could offer a qualified employee discount, but that's not what we're talking about today. And that's a whole nother part of 132. So the idea being that, yeah, that seat's going there, but we have to wait to make sure there is no paying customer who's going to fill that seat otherwise. And if not, then employees can use that seat and we don't have to put in the W-2. But there's another issue with Section 132's exception. It only counts for the employee, and it starts literally just saying that, but then it gets quirky like the code does sometimes and defines employee to include retired employees and also defines employees to include an employee, which include a retired employee spouse or dependent child. So any of those can take the free flight. And actually, if it's airline offered a flight of, you know, no additional cost service, because there are other options. Some of the examples that also work is uh, certain things related to, I think they've had telephone services have worked that way. Uh, trains work that way. You know, some various others, but very limited number of businesses can make this work. But only in flights can the family, can this allowed group that we're not going to charge the employee for, can also include their parents. Okay, let's go to Mr. Mahalik's case. Mr. Mahalik was a retired pilot for United Airlines. Now, he made use of this free ticket program, but he also had a couple of other family members. And we assume the court said, well, we never really were told their relationship, but they have the same last name, and this particular spelling of Mahalik is probably not something where there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people named this sitting in the location he's at. So, you know, we, we can say there's a reasonable chance with that last name uh, that these are probably relatives, so we'll accept that. Well, the catch becomes two of his relatives, right? In this case, a, a Sean Garth Mahalik and Jessica Maline Lining Mahalik also received tickets from the airline under this program in 2016. Now, United Airlines, again, didn't issue anything to this retired pilot related to the value of tickets that he and his spouse used. However, they did issue a 1099 miscellaneous, you know, for essentially other income, for the value of the tickets used by 
Sean, and Jessica. Now, Mr. Mahalik did not report these amounts as income. Okay? The problem is, as noted here, that exclusion is strictly limited to spouses and dependent children. So the problem the court came with, because he didn't report it, was, and the IRS came back, was very simple. Sorry, this doesn't qualify. The two individuals in question, while we don't know their relationship, we do know a couple of things. Uh, we know their ages, and they were both too old to qualify as dependent children under these rules. Now, the court did make one issue here. Apparently, at least one of them was under age 24. Um, you know, above 18, below 24. But the court pointed out that the taxpayers never argued that they were full-time students, etc., who were dependents. So in any event, they never showed that these were dependent children. Well, if they're not dependent children, then United Airlines is correct, and this is taxable to him. Now, I tried one other route, because there is one other way that you might be able to get a fringe benefit. But this also works narrowly. The good news is it's available to a lot more employers. The bad news is, though, it is very narrow in how it works. And that is the concept of a de minimis fringe benefit. Now, de minimis fringe benefits under the code, uh, which would be 132A4, de minimis fringe benefits, that only per the code's definition is it has to be something that is of relatively small value and administratively, you know, just impractical to account for. The court found two problems with this. First, the court said the value of these tickets, you know, tickets to various locales, various locations, these tickets that were used by Sean and Jessica, their value was far higher than the examples going to find in the IRS regulations. For instance, a standard example we use of this is, let, let's say we're coming up on Thanksgiving and you decide to provide each of your employees with a turkey. You just kind of drop this frozen bird on their desk. Now, of course, you've got a vegetarian in the group that's pro or vegan. It's not going to work well there. But nevertheless, let's take the example of the turkey. That would be considered to be a de minimis fringe benefit. You know, they're worth not a huge amount of money. Um, the, their each value is weirdly different because, you know, it just depends upon the weight of them and they're not going to be identically weighted. Um, it's just not worth the bother to, you know, it's very impractical to account for those. So in that case, you're allowed to not exclude it. However, the other side of that example that's been given for years is if instead of getting them that turkey, because I do have, let's say, vegetarian, vegan employees, and I, or I have people that just say I hate turkey, which is also a pretty good crowd, um, you know, I, I just decided to give everybody, let, let's say, a $15 uh, gift card to the local Kroger's. That is now taxable. Why? Anything denominated in money is able, it's practical to account for it, no matter what the value is. So that's the hitch. And the court said, well, let's get back to these airline tickets. First, A, the value is way higher than the examples. But number two, it's not impracticable to, be, to account for them because United Airlines obviously has been accounting for them for years. So bottom line, you don't get this. So at the end of the day, while this retired pilot could exclude the tickets he used, he could exclude the tickets his spouse used. 
he could not exclude the tickets, the other relatives. The only other relative groups that could qualify under the no additional cost fringe benefit program, in his case, because as an airline, would have been his parents. Well, at this point, probably there's a good chance his parents are deceased at this point. So we might assume that's why we don't have the parents in the mix. We also, you know, can't exclude any dependent children. And again, at the age he was, probably doesn't have many of those either. So the bottom line is, you know, any other relative, while United can allow it, and in fact, United just flagged them as friends. So you have so many people you could designate, apparently, under United's program. But anybody aside from the, you know, that narrow group, United keeps the value, issues a 1099, which is exactly what they should be doing, and it is taxable. Next up, the United States Supreme Court denied certiorari this week on April the 18th in the case of New York and a number of other states versus Yellen. Um, this was the case where various states, New York being the lead one, had filed suit arguing that Congress overstepped their bounds and violated the U.S. Constitution by putting the cap on the deduction for state and local taxes. Now, honestly, I never really felt this had any chance of going anywhere. It seemed like a nice showcase. And, you know, people do these, you know, for showcases. Attorney generals love them. And attorney generals from all, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, Republican, Democrat, whoever, you know, it's a way to do it. And in many cases, you're taking cases that, just to be blunt, you know you're going to lose. But you take them up to show you're fighting the good fight for whatever in the world you want to be arguing you're fighting the good fight for. So that was really, to my extent, a lot of this. The Second Circuit had ruled already against New York and the other states. They said, look, Congress has no obligation to allow a deduction for state income taxes. They said this has kind of been decided before. Uh, a few years ago, there was this big to-do when Congress started taxing muni bonds. And did that infringe on the state's rights and their ability to raise money, etc.? And that had already been ruled, nope, guys, sorry, Congress has a right to tax that. And the Second Circuit said, if anything, and I think it was South Carolina that challenged that, they said, actually, they had a better argument, you know, for what was going on there, and they still lost. So you're going to lose on this. Well, the state also said, well, yeah, yeah, but, but th th this was enacted uh, specifically to punish certain states was the way they phrased it. And the court said, well, the Second Circuit said, well, you know, tax laws generally, you know, they're going to be losers in many tax laws. And they exist and they affect people differently. And that's not really the issue. Right. It doesn't matter. That's great. But nothing stops Congress from doing this. You know, if, if Congress wants to benefit a particular industry and not benefit another, well, they do that, right? You offer a tax credit for various things like doing research activities. Those obviously benefit certain industries more than others, right? It's kind of the way that works. You know, we, we decide you get a tax credit for childcare, right? That benefits people who have children but doesn't benefit people who don't. Now, you can, you know, it, it's part of the discretion Congress is allowed to follow. So the Second Circuit had said, guys, you know, get out of here. 
There is no way to overturn this. Whether you know, we're not going to talk about whether it's good policy, bad policy, guys. That's irrelevant. Congress is allowed to do this. You've got to find other means to get it overturned. Well, especially attorney generals, you know, want to show they fought as far as they could. So New York and the other states asked the Supreme Court to hear the case. This week, we officially got on tax day uh, the nail in the coffin. Uh, they essentially refused to hear the case. Now, while theoretically, I guess, they could still raise this another circuit and try to win it, practical matter is I don't see any, I, you know, I, th this is it. It's dead, right? It's not going anywhere. I can't imagine any other circuit coming to any different conclusion. And if they were even thinking of doing so, the fact the Supreme Court didn't pick this up should probably tell them that the Supreme Court thinks that, yeah, there's not really any basis in this case. So we'll go from there. Now let's go to Revenue Procedure 2022-23 that was issued on the 19th of April, day after tax day. And this is Congress uh, making some fixes, allowing us to handle late elections and allowing us to make late changes in accounting methods. The Consolidated Appropriations Act 2020 made retroactively changes to rules that allowed for bonus depreciation in special cases, for non-gambling business property on Native American reservations, and for qualifying second-generation biofuel plant property. Now, in both cases, a taxpayer could elect not to take advantage of that. But you had to do it you know, with a timely filed election with the original return. The problem we ran into is, obviously, um, nobody knew to make that election. You couldn't make that because Congress didn't get around. These had expired at the end of 17, or the end of 18, I guess it was. And so, essentially, or the, no, the end of 17. So, you know, we went a whole year. We had already filed the 18 returns, going to file the 19 returns. And, yes, they did change the law retroactively right at the end of 19, but you might remember this thing called a pandemic that kicked up uh, in March of 2020. Remember that thing? You might, might have heard of it. Uh, obviously, people got rather distracted. So it's very possible that, you know, you did returns, finished returns, and this never got, you know, we just ignored this. People weren't aware of it. Well, the IRS has now gone back and they're going to allow you to make a late election on the first return you file after April 19th of 2022, so basically the one, if you're filing a return from now forward, you can late make that election to skip doing it if you don't want to go back and revise the prior returns. That can be done. The other issue in here is there also was expensing rules for film, television, live theater productions. They expanded those. They're also offering the same relief there. So we have new automatic accounting method changes and the ability to be treated as making these elections. You put them on this return and they'll be treated as if they'd been made on the appropriate return. That's how this works. So pretty much fills that in, does add a new accounting method change. If you are impacted by the, these three areas and they're all kind of you know rather specific, uh, but if you have been impacted, that, that, that of course will be there. So, you know, you, you want to take a look at that and consider it. Okay, let's talk about real estate pros. Okay, because a lot of our clients get very confused. They've talked to this, always love it. They come in and tell you that their friends have been doing this for years 
and they're a real estate pro. It's a new client. They'll tell you it's this, whatever. This is the case of Sezanov versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-40, decided on April the 20th. Now, we want to talk a little bit about this. This particular couple had claimed losses on rental property they had purchased in Florida. They, as I recall, lived in Ohio, uh, but had these rentals down in Florida, two of them. Right? And they claimed and fully deducted the losses on Schedule E. Didn't tell us how they did it. They may have prepared the return by hand, which would have been the easiest way that they could have just taken the deduction. Or I would assume if they did electronically, they overrode the program or told them, you know, found out, you know, what, what, what magic thing do I have to check to get the deduction and check that magic thing. And obviously, you know, we've got these deductions for rentals. And so they now come before the court. IRS says, wait, rentals are by definition a passive activity. So since 1986, rentals have been automatically passive. Unlike other trades or businesses, where we look to see if you have enough uh, participation in the activity to be considered to materially participate in the activity, which then would allow you to claim losses from that activity against any other types of income. For rental real estate, Congress in 1986, when they passed the passive loss rules, said, well, real estate's just automatically passive. We're not going to get into that argument here with it. Now, the real estate industry became somewhat upset after that and said, wait, th th this is unfair. Uh, you know, we, we, we need a break. So a few years later, we got the concept of the real estate professional rules. Okay, so what we have now is our real estate pro rules. Now, the real estate pro rules work like this. You can be a real estate professional. You've got to meet two criteria. The first criteria is more than one half of the personal services performed have to be in trades or businesses, uh, you know, by the, during the tax year for those. I'll state this correctly now. Over half of the personal services is performed it, by the person during the taxable year performed in real property trades or businesses in which the person materially participates. Now, a real property trade or business is involved with real property in terms of development, redevelopment, construction, reconstruction, acquisition, conversion, rental, operation, management, leasing, or brokerage. Any of those are real estate businesses. If the business is, if the person is performing these services as an employee, then there's another condition. So if I'm working for, let's say, a construction company, those only count as real estate business hours. If my, if I own 5% or more interest in the construction company, right? So if, if I'm just, let, let's say, you know, I, I work for a huge construction company uh, and I own no stock or own, you know, a minor percentage, you know, that, just like owning five shares of Microsoft, um, that's not going to count. That's going to count as non-real estate work, despite the fact I'm working in construction. Okay. So I need over half of my hours. That poses a problem for our clients quite often because if they have a full-time job that's either not in one of these real property trades or businesses, or they're an employee and they don't have the 5% ownership, even though it is a real property trade or business, we're already in deep trouble because, you know, average, you know, an employee that's over 2,000 hours being full time 
And remember, the burden's on you to show exactly how many hours you did. And you've got to prove you didn't have more than you say. And then you have to have enough hours in the other entities, which in this case would include the rentals. You know, it would be real estate, trade, or business. I've got to have enough hours there to go at least one hour over, you know, or one-tenth of an hour, whatever, over the amount I had in that, you know, in that work I'm doing in my main job. Okay. But then second, even if you meet that test, you still have to show you have at least 750 hours in the real property, trades, or businesses. That's going to be required. And if it's a married couple doing this, one of the spouses has to meet both of these tests on their own. Right? They cannot, you can't combine the spouses for this purpose. So that complicates matters as well. For passive activity testing, normally I can. If I'm a real estate pro, I'm still not out of the woods. Because even if I'm a real estate pro, it only means my rentals aren't automatically passive. But not automatically passive does not mean not passive. I still have to show using the standard tests for a trader business that I materially participate. And the law provides by default, unless we make an election, all of our rentals are treated as separate activities, which means it's tougher, but we can elect to treat all of our rentals as a single activity. Now, that's and that's and makes it easier to materially participate. But the downside of that is if we don't succeed during material participation, we can't actually write off the suspended losses until we either have income from the rentals or we get rid of every single one of them because they're all now one activity. So that's the downside of the combining election. But your average real estate, true real estate professional, right, who's showing those losses there, they're, you know, if, if they can make that stick, you know, combining makes it easier to make it stick. And if it sticks, we're claiming the losses. So we're in good shape. Now, here's where the problem came in for these taxpayers. Turns out they really didn't have records of hours. Number one rule, you need records to prove your hours. The burden's on you to prove you qualify. The burden's not on the service to show you don't. Okay. Number two, so they went back and they attempted to reconstruct the hours. Okay, now problem number two they ran into. They went back, they totaled their hours for the two years in question. And the problem we run into is that in both years, in the year 2013, um, you know, one of the spouses had 476 hours and 20 minutes computed. The other had 405 hours and 30 minutes. And in the following year, well, it got a lot worse. One spouse had 80 minutes and 20 seconds during the year. And the other spouse had, you know, 20, or I should say 80 hours and 20 minutes. And the other one had 26 hours and 40 minutes in it. Now, there were big problems with these records. They were rough approximations. There were clear problems with them. But as the court noted, ignore all that. If I just accept there, if I accept these hours as perfect, they're still not above 750 hours. So essentially, even if I accept their evidence, they still lose because they couldn't prove the real estate pro side, right? That's the big problem. So remember, for your clients to be a real estate pro, what are the problems we tend to see? First problem is they don't keep the records, and that's how most of these cases fall apart. 
But secondly, or they try, and then they try to reconstruct them at trial. They end up with days they have 27 hours in, which, of course, is a little bit troublesome. How one person could have 27 hours of activity in a single day is a little difficult to explain. I guess if you swap time zones enough, you can make it work. But it's difficult to do all that and then still be doing something while swapping the time zones. So we'll, we'll put it as that that could be difficult, right? The other thing they run into is, as I said, they have a full-time job. And that full-time job's not in real estate businesses or they don't have the 5% ownership interest, you know, as an employee. That's also where we tend to see problems. And then the third problem that comes up less but still is the issue, remember, even if you clear those hurdles, you're not out of the woods until you can show material participation under the standard seven tests for material participation. So real estate pros, I know everybody says their buddy does it all the time, and it's always been true, unquote, they've never been audited. I got news for you. There, if there's one thing the IRS seems to raise more than other things recently in terms of the case law, the cases we see is we do see regularly the real estate pro cases going to court. So, yeah, they probably don't catch most of them, but they catch enough. And these people get just, you know, totally blown out of the, out of the water when we go to court. And remember, the other problem that you have as a tax professional is you know this doesn't work. And if push comes to shove, your client suddenly tends to, you know, decide that you should have known and warned them, no matter how much they push for it. So you got to kind of push back on these things, right? So we have that. Um, that was the big problem. Now, as I already mentioned, the K2, K3 situation will not go away. The IRS, remember this frequently asked questions they update in February? right, for the K-2 and K-3 informations for Form 1065, 1120S, and 8865. Well, on April the 11th, they made changes in a couple of ways. They did give us some information about how to deal with mutual funds and the RIC country code. The good news is we can use it. We'll talk about that here in a second. And then they also uh, gave us the okay to not filling in everything. So that's also, you know, Pretty much, we, we, we don't have to fill in everything on the K2, K3. If it's not relevant to the partners, they don't need it for this purpose. So, And that also suggests that you can pull the pages, which I know I've had people ask about that because the K3 is a lot of pages if the only thing we got to give somebody is how much foreign taxes were withheld by the mutual fund. So, you know, basically... Yeah, we can get away without having to do all of that attached with blank page after blank page. And I should remind you, they also do still ask for comments. Let's look at some of these questions. Uh, question 18, which was there in February, it still reminds you, if you have additional feedback, I'm sure they've gotten lots of it by now, uh, there is an address to call you can bring in, so that ought to be there. Now, question 19 added the point of the Partnership Rest Corporation does not qualify for the exception in FAQ 15. That's when they didn't have to attach the K2 or K3 to the return. So now they're going to have to attach it. Are they required to complete all parts of the K2, K3? The answer here is essentially, according to the instructions, an S Corporation partial only required to complete the relevant portions of schedules K2 and K3. And they give you a link back to the instructions. Now, most of our tax software has been assuming that, yeah, not only do you not need to complete it, so they won't complain to you, but the parts that aren't completed also, in many cases, the software is not going to attach that to the K-1. 
right? Unless obviously if there's a part, there's something on that page is completed, they'll put that page of the K3 on the K1 with the K1, but yeah, you can leave the others off. I'd say that that still seems to be fine here in this area, right? Um, next up, they'll say a filer otherwise required to file from 5471, 8865 and or 8858 can qualify for an exception for filing those forms from, based on the code, IRS guidance or instructions to the form. So there may be the multiple filer exception 5471, for example. If they qualify for an exception to the instructions to K2 and K3, nevertheless require the filer to complete those forms. And the answer here is pretty simply no. Um, however, if you do need to provide information you're supposed to provide in lieu of those forms, generally, yes, you'll have to provide that information to those, you know, your partners in this case. But you don't have to just fill in the form. If you didn't have to fill the form in because of these exceptions, the fact you're doing a K2 or K3 does not require you to fill in the form. Just provide whatever information you are already required to provide. Finally, and this is the one I got asked a question about more than anybody else. Was kind of anything else is kind of interesting. In part two, section one, right, description, in part three, section four, lines one and three of K2, is it possible to enter the code RIC? Now, for those who aren't aware, RIC is the code for registered investment company, right, which is the Internal Revenue Code's way of saying essentially mutual fund, right? So mutual funds are called registered investment companies. Uh, with the registered investment company rules, right, one of the things that comes into play is that mutual funds generally, especially you know, the, these foreign funds, that somebody got $100 worth of income, you know, let's say dividend income from, well, they might have $8 of foreign taxes, but because it's a mutual fund holding, you know, a mutual fund that's holding a lot of shares of everything, and they're, a, let's say they're an international fund, that, you know, that, that $8 could be divided among 52 countries and there'd be pennies for each one. So rather than provide that insane level of detail, the instructions for the 1116 allow them to simply treat or allow your taxpayer to treat that as one country and use code RIC and does not require the mutual fund to break out the countries. Now, the IRS in the instructions, and especially in the follow-up to the instructions they did in January, uh, specifically were, was complaining that you should not be using other countries or various on the sheet listing your foreign source income. And then they made a statement, which I think has caused the, all this confusion and caused your tax software providers to say, no, 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 you can't use RIC. They said, no, 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 you're, you're supposed to use the country codes from our page. They give the page of all the two-letter country codes. And, of course, RIC first isn't a two-letter code. Number two, it really isn't a country, right? And that's not on that page. So now you had people calling me saying, wait, I've got this partnership. You know, they have a brokerage account where they put some money this year. You know, they, they, they have like $600 of foreign taxes they received you know, that, that were taken out of the dividends for mutual fund. Uh, but all I'm told is various by the, you know, by the mutual fund. And my tax software, I tried putting various in. It says, no, no, no. And of course, I see that I can't do that. And then I try to put in OC for other countries. And it says, no, 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 can't, can't do that. That's not allowed either. I was told us that. 
And so how in the world can I report this? And as I said, well, on the 1116, you're allowed to use the RIC code. Yeah, but the software wouldn't let him use RIC, or it took weird tricks to get it on there. Now the IRS has clearly stated RIC is acceptable. The good news is this should take any recalcitrant tax software publishers and get them to actually, you know, pay attention to this, let's say, and actually end up with, um, you know, allowing RIC on there as a code. So we shouldn't be stuck with this RIC doesn't count anymore, right? We can't use that. The problem is it'll probably going to take a couple of runs before your software publishers will update their software to allow this if they were blocking it. So just be aware of that issue. Finally, this week, let's take a look at the case of Treese Investment Advisory Corporation versus Commissioner. And this is a question of can the IRS review or can the tax court review an IRS determination that an employer does not qualify to enter uh, the IRS's VCSP program. And that is the program, get the right thing, the Voluntary Classification Settlement Program. That's a program where employers can voluntarily come forward and say, I think I've been misclassifying these people as independent contractors. I want to now come clean and treat them as employees. And if the company does that voluntarily under announcement 2012-45, the employer files, in this case, uh, Form 8952, Application for Voluntary Classification Settlement Program with the IRS, you know, discloses the amounts they paid, and they pay what's essentially a reduced amount of tax compared to what the IRS could try to take from them uh, in that case. And they can go forward then, treat them as W-2 employees in the future, and have no problem. There are, But there are conditions to coming into this program. And the conditions are you have to consistently treat these people as non-employees. If they were employees and then swapped out, you don't qualify for this. You have to, require all, you have, to have filed all required forms 1099 consistent with non-employee treatment for the previous three years. So you got to make sure you got three years of compliance with 1099s. And then finally, you can't be under examination, employment tax audit by the IRS. Now, in this case, we have a taxpayer who attempted to apply for this program. The question was they were not treating the officer, the owner, right? The 100% owner of the corporation was not being treated as an employee. As you're probably aware, that doesn't fly, right? Basically, officers of corporations are always employees, period. Even if they're not common law employees for federal tax purposes, they are always employees, right? That's part of what the code tells us automatically. So dead to rights, this guy is an employee, okay? Now, the IRS had determined that they did not qualify. And the IRS determined they did not qualify because the IRS said, wait, they're only coming to us now because we did an employment tax exam and we raised the point that this guy, you know, the officer has to be an employee. And so you don't qualify. We threw that out. Now, the taxpayer attempts now to go to the U.S. tax court because, of course, the IRS now has finished his exam and assesses tax against him. Uh, you know, the full-blown throws the book at him. So we're talking about a lot more taxes that are now they're coming after him for. 
than they would come after him for if, had he gone through the voluntary program. Now, the IRS, what the court looked at, though, the IRS said a couple things. Okay, he doesn't qualify, but secondly, it doesn't matter if he does or doesn't because this is a voluntary administrative program, and tax court, you have no jurisdiction to look at this. The tax court decided it did have jurisdiction. It said, look, one of the things which we can decide is whether the amount of tax in question has been properly computed. And because this program would affect the tax that would be properly assessed because it is binding on the service, we have the right to review your determination because if your determination is in error and he qualifies for this program, then you're not allowed to collect the tax that you're trying to collect from him. So the court said, we have a right to review this question. IRS, you're wrong saying the tax court can never look at this. However, they did not rule on whether the IRS decision not to align in the program was unreasonable. And my guess is, assuming the IRS is right that he's under exam, because the taxpayer actually was also asking the tax court to rule that he qualified. And they said, nope, you know, we're going to have to get some evidence from you and the IRS about the status of your interactions to determine if, in fact, there was an exam already in place, if, in fact, therefore, this really isn't a voluntary coming forward. And if that's the case, then, you know, bottom line, they're probably going to sustain the IRS. So probably this client, you know, this particular business, Trees Investment Advisory Corp., Probably, I suspect from reading the case, I have a feeling they're probably going to lose this because I think the I think it's highly likely the service was conducting an exam and that's probably was the motivation uh, for doing this. Uh, but again, but it would depend on facts. And obviously we get the point at what point to consider it in exam. And that's what the tax court needs evidence on. They said you didn't present us with, you know, there, there's not enough evidence presented in motions for summary judgment that, you know, that I can say, even you know, even if I look at this evidence in the best possible light, you know, uh, for the IRS or for you, let's say I, I look at it in the best possible light for the IRS, that the IRS couldn't win. They said, no, nope, you're not near that. We need, we have a, true issues of facts that need more evidence. It's not appropriate for summary judgment. So they didn't do that. Well, this has been our post-tax season, current federal tax developments. Hopefully, I'll be able to keep on the schedule now. Uh, probably the next time we'll have some risk of not doing it is as we come up to the October 15th deadline. Remember that, that the ultimate deadline deadline. But otherwise, hopefully, you're doing fine this year. Hopefully, you've uh, taken care of all your stuff you have to deal with. And so, remember, I am still watching for posts on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois and Washington and keep an eye on posts that may go up on the Idaho Society's website so you can keep an eye there. If you have questions, you can also email me edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com you know, and uh, I'll try to get to questions there as they come up. I got a little better time now, a little more time not actually look at something. And otherwise, we'll be looking at what's coming up this week in the area of federal taxes and should be back next week to uh, talk to you about what exactly ends up happening with the IRS, the courts, or anybody else in the coming week.